HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin, and this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers, coming to you today from Shasta County, California. And happy to be joined on the phone by Sebastian Rose, who is farming down at Owl Peak Farm in rural Lomendera, New Mexico. Hi, Sebastian. Hi there, Severin. How's it going? Going good. How's it going down there? You had some, uh, some little bits of rain? We had little bits of rain, and it's feeling like fall spring. I bet it's going to be 70 degrees soon and then drop back down to 20. Oh, dear. What does that mean for your fruit trees? <laughs> oh, it just means the usual. It's, um, they're forced into bloom, and then uh, they, of course, freeze, and we lose our fruit. Uh, in a lot of places up here, you get fruit about every five to seven years, predictably. Oh, so that's not what we want to have happen to the Young Farmer Movement. We'd like for the fruit, <laughs> the blossoms to emerge and the hopeful tendrils to emerge and then not be shocked and destroyed by corporate power or climate crisis. But anyway, just keep the goals in mind. Will you mind introducing yourself and your region just briefly? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Sebastian Rose, and um I work with the Owl Peak Farm Collective here in northern New Mexico in a small village um, called La Madera. We're about 6,200 feet, which is not too high for around here, and our farm is at the junction of two rivers. It is the high desert, so we get average about 6 to 12 inches precipitation um, per year, uh, most of it coming all at once during the monsoon. Um, with we're getting um, less and less snowpack. We have very low organic material, salty soils, lots of drought, temperature extreme, a short growing season, and um, we're lucky because we're growing in the floodplain, so we have a high water table, which poses its own problems, but definitely more water to work with than some of our neighbors um, who are higher out of the valley. 
um, Owl Peak Farm is um, it's a, a wonderful agroecology collective, and we're five members now. We're a Spanish-English bilingual collective with the goals of providing affordable food and regionally adapted non-GE seed, compost starts, and sustainability education to our local community here in northern New Mexico. So that's a little bit about us. And tell me about your own background. Like, how did you come to be in this place? (laughs) So I was born in Colorado. I didn't grow up farming. Um, I grew up in Colorado, California, and I have only been in New Mexico about eight years now. Um, But I've always loved plants, and both my mother and my grandmother instilled um, an extensive knowledge and love for plants. I remember walking to school and, um, you know, naming every single plant as I would go. That's, that was just my practice. So um, after working in the social justice field for 10 years, I got more into food justice. And at the same time, I was living in a city and trying to grow in any space possible, rooftop gardens, any, any, any ground I could get, I was growing. And when the... Um, opportunity came for me to move to New Mexico to be closer to my family out here, uh, I jumped because of the thought of um, being able to rent some spot with land to grow on. So um, moving to New Mexico, I you know, had a market garden and um, then was just growing for our own personal consumption after that and came to Owl Peak Farm um, through a funny chain of events, but... Um, Love being there now. So let's talk a little bit about the climate and the context. I mean, being in such a cold, rural, dry place, with a, what is the traditional agriculture scene there? And what practices are you seeing carried over into your own contemporary practice? Um, and what are you kind of dealing with and confronting? Uh, yeah. Whereas you try to deal with that landscape. So uh, here in northern New Mexico, um, the traditional agriculture mostly revolves around the acequia system, and the acequias are an irrigation system um, that dates back about 500 years or a little more um, that channels the snow melt um, into irrigation channels, basically, that are then collectively managed by communities. It's a wonderful communal water system, and it's actually under attack by a lot of things right now, Um, one being climate change, the other being um, growth in the state that is not respectful of these practices nor of farming. Um, And... uh, it's, but it's, a, it's an incredible system. I've never, I've never worked with anything like this before. And the, the community that's built around the acequias, um, it's incredible. Um, so that's, that's sort of the traditional as a flood-irrigated tro- crop. But the problem that we're faced with now is that the acequias in a lot of places are drying up because of the incredible drought. And uh, people who have been farming, you know, for generations with acequias then are faced with not growing at all if the acequia isn't running. Um, For example, we've been talking with a lot of neighbors um, in regards to some seed questions because we are trying to see if we can clean up um, 
our entire watershed of GMO corn so that we could have a GE-free growing area. Um, and in the conversations that we've been having, a lot of people say, oh, well, I used to grow corn, but I don't grow corn anymore because there's just not enough water. So while in some parts of the Southwest there's amazing traditions of dry farming, uh, northern New Mexico is more dependent on the acequias. Um, in terms of other uh, climatic conditions that we deal with, being in the floodplain, we have a very high water table. And if you're in a desert, that's, you know, that's a blessing. Again, we never can complain about water. But what it does mean is if you want to grow most fruit trees or in some, um, some parts of our fields, you know, even root vegetables, you have to contend with a water table that's, that's less than 12 inches below grade um, during some of the most important growing parts of the season. Um, and so because we're an agroecology farm and we're really, really, really trying to balance our wild spaces within our agricultural spaces, you know, the idea, the traditional idea of draining a field, especially if you're in the desert, sounds kind of crazy to us. So we've been working with some creative ways to um, use the high water table as a benefit and help cycle that moisture through. And it's not a consistently high water table. It drops, it rises and it drops seasonally. So um, one of the other issues that that brings is salting. The water table rises and um, when it drops, especially if the soil is tilled and bare, when it drops, it can leave, you know, a a quarter inch of uh, salty crust on the top of your soil. So if you, um, you know, if you just approach your field thinking, oh, I think I'm just going to, you know, plow and disc and maybe plant a cover crop this fall, come spring, if that cover crop has not germinated or grown properly, you can be faced with a bare and very salty situation that the even very salt-tolerant crops won't germinate in, or cover crops won't even germinate in. Um, so one of the ways that we were able to creatively deal with that is through hugel culture, and uh, I had no experience with this. I had read about it somewhere, um, but having come to Owl Peak Farm and been put in charge of a field that had been tilled and plowed at the wrong time and was now crusted with salt, um, I thought we might as well give it a shot because I didn't know what else to do. And I had heard that very active soil biology can tie up salts. So with hugel culture, basically um, that means hill culture in German. I'm pronouncing, I'm butchering the pronunciation, I'm sorry. Um, but it means hill culture. So you basically dig a trench and backfill that trench with woody slash. You don't want to use um, trees like junipers or um, tree or black locust or anything that's going to take a very long time to decay because you actually want this woody material to decay. And um, so you backfill your trench with a bunch of old logs. Rotten is better. If you don't have rotten, you know you can use green. And um, we also threw in some of the best compost we had. And then you um, put all the topsoil that you scraped out of that trench back on top of your mound of wood. And, you know, that mound of wood was a couple feet high, maybe three feet high. Um, so what you end up with 
is about a six-foot-tall hill of soil, um, and at the core of it, it has um, a woody mass. And if all works well, which it actually did for us, surprisingly, that woody mass decays into a sponge, and it's a very fungally rich sponge, and so it has much of the soil biology that you're looking for anyways. And we've gone through a lot of iterations experimenting the best way to plant the hoogles. Um, we, we had a very, very productive year planting it with a, um, a pretty wide variety of annuals, but it was so difficult to harvest we gave that up. And now we're moving more towards woody perennials as well as letting a lot of the so-called weeds um, be dynamic accumulators and cycle the nutrients um, in our hoogles. So unlike other areas of the farm, it has a very different soil fertility program. We don't, um, we don't fertilize or cover crop traditionally the hoogles. We let certain weeds grow and chop them back, and um, we're growing successfully a lot of unusual small fruits like sea berries and currants and gumi and things like that. So that's, that's working really well for us. So the hookah cultures are a new, not innovation, but new practice that you're bringing, actually importing from an Austrian ecosystem, alpine um, context from uh, Sepp Holzer, who people probably have read about. He's the hookah culture genius. Um, but then traditional crops that you're growing uh, out there include the chili pepper and obviously the the biodiversity that is in the in the chili culture and in the culture of chilies and the traditions of very many place-based chilies is a super important part of the culinary heritage and cultural heritage and cultural landscape of the Southwest. Um, do you want to give people like kind of a little briefing about what's going on with chili peppers and how you're um, kind of in your own work and, and through your own action confronting that, those challenges? Sure. Um, the, everyone knows that New Mexico is, you know, really the chili state, and we have amazing native chilies here, which have been grown for over 500 years. Um, it's a complicated picture, what is happening currently, and it's, it's a frustrating one. Um, there is currently um, um, a push to... Uh, control, of course, the seed, the native chili seed. And um, for um, the past few years, a lot of local farmers have been fighting this chili labeling um, legislation that's been put in place. Um, currently, the, the law states that um, if you grow a certain amount of chili uh, by New Mexico law, you have to call it, um, you have to, you, you cannot call it anything besides hatch chili, basically. That's where it's moving. But you cannot call it, um, say, alcalde chili or chimayo chili unless you have that legally protected yourself. Um, this is really challenging because in New Mexico, all of the chili is extremely regional. I mean, village by village, people have their lines of chili. And so to be denied the right 
to grow or sell your chili if you call it by its name. It's like saying that you can't have your name any longer. You know, you can't be called Severin any longer unless, well, you just can't. Um, and so it's, a, it's an ongoing story, and, and I, have, um, I have hope that there, there's going to be uh, resolution, but it's, it's extremely complicated, and I, I could go on for, for maybe an hour about this, but that's, that's the brief summary. Well, I guess a question, just where can people learn more and read, you know, kind of about the issue to learn, you know, how does this issue of registering and designating the power to register particular mm-hmm. varieties relate to what's happening with seeds internationally mm-hmm. in Europe with the Codex now looking at the fast track of the TPP. I know that the registration of varieties and varietal and control of uh, uh, varietal uh-huh. is definitely a part of that whole package. Absolutely. Um, so maybe just a couple pointers on where, if this is something that people want to know more about, that they should focus their uh, eyeballs. Yes, absolutely. Um, in terms of specifically Chile, Save New Mexico Seed is uh, Save New Mexico Seed is doing some really great work on there, and um, seeing some of the uh, press reports they've put out, um, and also um, Owl Peak Farm, and um, in in collaboration with a few other wonderful organizations such as Greenhorns. We're going to be actually putting on a class, hosting a class on these kind of questions around seed policy, and this is this coming September. Um, so, checking out the um, Owl Peak Farm Facebook site, up and coming, and also um, I would imagine Greenhorns is going to be posting something about this as well. But we're going to be getting into the nitty gritty of. Um, how how is this um, co-opting of our culture of our seed happening, and what we can do to prevent it? What's happened um, on a policy level? How to be informed and how to fight it? You know, from where you are on your farm. So that's that's this September. There's also um, you know any any time that you can hear Vandana Shiva speak, of course, you know, or just uh, googling one of her talks. It's incredibly informative. Um, and um, I'm trying to think of any specific other books. Maybe you have. Well, I've got another well. uh, suggestion, which is I know that on April, uh, I think it's April 8th or maybe it's April 18th, that Don Tipping and Rowan White are teaching another seed school. Um, and then there's ongoing seed schools happening with the um, Native Seed Search and Organic Seed Alliance and various, various. Seed trainings to help people get oriented not only into the practice of seed saving and seed breeding and adaptive seed breeding and uh, managing populations of seed that are becoming land races in the particular place that you're breeding them, yeah. you know, rekindling a relationship with the genetics of our food plants and staying in a, in a taught uh, in a taught encounter with what's possible from within those genetics, and then you know. Having, having, uh, you know, being in touch with the the dynamic flux of evolution, you know, in your own backyard. But then also Absolutely. the part of that work, which is defending the seed. Absolutely. And I mean, as humans, freedom. we've been saving seed for what fourteen thousand years, 
and it's only in the last century that we've watched most of this inheritance disappear. You know, we've lost 75% of all of our crop varieties, and um, if we're just talking about the U.S., I believe it's 50% of our, of our calories now come from just four species, and three corporations control 50% of the world seed market. Um, those are the statistics as I last learned them, and they're probably worse, you know, 15 minutes later. Um, but I think really learning what's happening about seed and also diversifying what you eat, really seek out, um, like you were saying, Severin, you know, if there are local, more genetically diverse land race varieties, try to incorporate them into your diet, you know, in your farm and in your garden. Choose unusual stuff that might not be uniform, might not all produce at the same time, but, you know, we can, we can eat for genetic diversity and grow for genetic diversity, too. Right, and I think people are kind of getting the story and that the, the word is spread, but, it's, you know, it behooves us to mention once again that there's many varieties of, um, you know, hybrid and non-hybrid vegetable varieties that are really, really great performers used by a lot of CSA and market growers, such as Sugar Baby, Watermelon, and Early Girl Tomato, which are now owned by and, and sold to seed companies, uh, such as Johnny's, such as, you know, uh, Territorial, such as Peaceful Valley by Semenis, mm-hmm. which is owned by Monsanto. So, in fact, those varieties are controlled by Monsanto, and many varieties have been dropped. Um, even from the collections that were purchased by Semenis. Uh So there's, you know, less diversity within the kind of commercial vegetable space. Uh, and, again, I'm still learning about this because I'm going to all the workshops because um, this is, this, these seeds are our future. And particularly yeah. as we're looking at climate, climate changes, the more we have in the hat, diversity-wise, mm-hmm. the more we are able to be in relationship with that diversity the better able we are to adapt our system in place, in situ, ecologically, not in a lab, not for a chemical corporation, but really um, on behalf of that place and the systems that are possible in that place. So anyway, I encourage everyone to just make sure you're doing your due diligence. There's plenty to read. Uh, Organic Seed Alliance is a really great place to read stuff. And... um, you know, if you're feeling that you don't want to be growing those varieties anymore, there are alternatives, and there's been a lot of effort and energy by a bunch of small seed companies to offer more regionally adapted alternatives to those, you know, not that kind of conventional market crops. Absolutely. Um, and I loved what you said, Severin, about, um, well, what you were implying is, you know, we we don't we don't need to have all of our plant breeding done in a lab, you know, Take it, take it back out of the lab into the field where it's been for so long. And it seems intimidating at first if you're not familiar with plant breeding. But if you're a farmer, you know, you are a plant breeder, whether you know it or not. And you can choose to be, you know, an intentional plant breeder or an unintentional plant breeder. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun. And it's, um, I think, the power that we have to both bring back land races as well as creating new land races, um, we, have, we have a lot of power over the diminishing genetic diversity that's facing agriculture today. So, uh, so taking the power back feels good in every way. Um, 
what's next for you? Like, where do you see, um, where do you see more action needed when you think about, especially marginal environment farmers? And you know, you're in a place where land is pretty inexpensive, so you represent um, kind of a part of the spectrum of growers that is, I'd say, you know, from my perspective, growing. More and more people are just like, I can't deal with waiting three years for a land trust or partnering with and waiting for loans or, you know, confronting head-on the hegemony of real estate development pressure and suburban growth and, you know, unreasonably high land prices. And so there's just a bunch of people going, like, much further rural. Mm-hmm. Um what do you see as a crucial component of that model succeeding? You're obviously growing seeds and doing workshops, which are value-added, you know, like $60 yeah. a pound for a nice seed. I was just learning about the prices. Actually, this came from um, Don Tipping's farm in Applegate Valley, who does seven, seven seed, seed farm and started a co-op. And we were talking about, you know, just like the post-ganja economy for for Northern California and Southern Oregon and how much how much logic there is in a kind of a post ganja economy to growing seeds because you can you know make real money growing seeds yeah but i wanted to hear your perspective on that too well absolutely i mean you mentioned um workshops that's something that um at all peak farm collective we find that really important because the community that we are part of um and yes of course it's more affordable but also, it's not separate from the issues that our community is facing. And so, you know, high poverty rates, high addiction rates, um, loss of water rights, massive um, soil degradation. We're losing our, our riparian zones, um, the protective cushion of plants that surrounds all rivers. And um, we're seeing a comeback of beavers, which is wonderful because in these communities, up here, the, the beavers have, have um, had a rough go for the last 100 years or so. Um, oh, my gosh. We have to do a whole other episode about beavers <laughs> and beavers and salmon and restoration hydrology, but we don't have time to do it today. I won't get into it too much, but I would just say that um, education, and the education goes both ways, um, we have been so lovingly educated uh, by our community, and we're also offering whatever educational resources we can to our community. And we're focusing on um, how to model small-scale, profitable um, agricultural businesses. And, um, you know, up in the the village that I live, the average income is about $10,000 a year. So if you can, you know, if you can even bring in a couple extra thousand, that makes a big difference. and seed is definitely something that um, is very uh, is a very good way to go. Um, but also just the intensive market gardening, um, and eggs, um, rootstock. Rootstock is is really great because it's easy to grow in a small space and it it makes good money. Um, things like that. Um, and we're we're trying to provide the kind of education and support that people will need in order to start small businesses on their own. Because the land is here, a lot of the skills are in the generation that's currently aging out, and the young generation is faced with a whole slew of problems, so the extra support is helpful. So 
So this brings us back to our, our major focus issue, which is access to land, transfer of ownership, transfer of stewardship, transfer of knowledge, the financial planning on both sides that has to happen for that to happen successfully to keep the land in agriculture, preferably sustainable and regional agriculture. And gives me a perfect lead-in to promote two upcoming events in Berkeley, California, which is March 17th and 18th. It's a doubleheader. We're doing screenings uh, and panels, uh, one focused on farmland, one focused on ranch land, both centered around a family business, family land, um, lease, lease drama, and, and development drama would be the, <laughs> my bullet point. And we've got amazing speakers from the ranching community, Joe Morris of Morris Grass-Fed Beef, and um, uh, Helena Norberg-Hodge talking about pastoralists, giving kind of an international context around rangeland management. Um, on the first night and then on the second night is, uh, oh, I forgot, Kelly Mulville will also be speaking from Piscinus Ranch. He's a big carbon farming dude. Talking about la- ranch access management, you know, how to make a living or, or in a real livelihood um, as, a ranch, as a rancher, especially at a time when, you know, ranches are millions and millions and millions of dollars and, um, you know, what is the context with federal grazing land and BLM land and just, you know, wrapping our heads around the political economy and the land health implications of our current economic and political structures. Hush dog. Um, and then Brookford Almanac, the film so far from New Hampshire, really amazing documents. That's our center. With a panel to follow, you can do dinner first. And those are hosted by Brower Center and Agrarian Trust with other fun folks in co-sponsor space. Um, so if you're able to come in the Bay Area, come. And then on the 19th is a Grange, Grange Future event in San Luis Obispo. And that whole weekend on the weekend is Grange Future events in Ojai, Ojai, California, Southern California. So tune in, check out the Greenhorns calendar. There's a lot coming up. And thank you, Sebastian, for being on the radio. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Severin. See you soon, I hope. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 